This episode is sponsored by our friends at Musicbed. Find the perfect song for your films with a highly curated roster featuring hundreds of artists, bands, and composers. As a good listener, you can get your first month of subscription free or 20% off a single song purchase. Just enter promo code GOOD when you check out. This episode of Good is also brought to you by Plot Devices. Plot Devices makes notebooks for writers and directors that help the filmmaking process be a little bit easier. Learn more at plotdevices.co. That's plotdevices.co. And get 20% off your first order with code GOOD20 at checkout. Also this season, we're continuing to give away a ton of content over at Patreon, sharing treatments, behind-the-scenes photos, and ways to interact with our guests from each episode. To become a patron, check out patreon.com slash goodthepodcast. Hey guys, my name's Christian Schultz, and this is Good. Okay, guys, we have something very cool going on for this week and next week's episodes. Uh, we have, if you didn't hear already, we have uh, a new sponsor called Plot Devices. Plot Devices is a really cool company that I use on a weekly basis. No lie. I, I love what they do. And they've been really cool to give us some stuff to give away. And uh, all you have to do is go to our Instagram and you have to follow plot devices and then comment on our photo that says plot devices and uh, you'll have a chance to win. It'll be me on my phone scrolling through comments, picking who I think should win. So just to be clear, we're giving away two packages here. One of them is the storyboard notebook and the other package is a couple story clock uh, workbooks and I use both of them. The story clock workbook is sort of changed my life. It's, it, it changed everything about the way that I, I do pre-production and I look at stories and outlines. It just, it changed my life. So even if you don't win, you should go and, and buy this stuff because it's seriously amazing. Um, but yeah, just to be clear, go to our Instagram, you'll see a plot devices image comment on that image and you follow plot devices as well you'll have a chance to win one of these two packages so i'm sort of sitting here trying not to freak out about this week's episode um it's been it's kind of been a long episode in the making i've been trying to get sean porter to speak with me For long, for a long time, uh, since the beginning of this show, and it's funny because he had only at the time that I started reaching out to him had only done, I think, Green Room, and then maybe Twentieth Century Women, but now he is. Um, he shot a movie called Green Book, which just won, which just won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Um, and if you haven't seen the film, it's amazing. Uh, but if you haven't seen any of the other things that Sean Porter has shot, uh, Green, Wo- Green Room, 20th Century Women, um, these are some of my favorite films. And I know that a lot of you are excited about this episode. So I'm going to shut up. 
I'm going to get to Sean. And so here we go. Here's our episode with cinematographer Sean Porter. I'm currently in in Oregon, uh, southern Oregon, right on the like 14 miles north of the California border. And um, it's been kind of a crazy journey getting here. It's from Seattle originally. And, um, and then okay. we ended up, my wife and I were in film together at the time. And um, Seattle's a pretty, pretty small market. And uh, it's a great place to learn. It's an amazing place to like right. hop on film sets and get a bunch of experience. But uh, you quickly realize that uh, all your mentors seem to flee <laughs> with a crazy rate of turnover. So, mm-hmm. um, and it was always New York or LA. So we ended up actually going to New York um, and okay. we were there for about four years and uh, made some little movies out there and thought we were just going to kind of put our heads down and be young professional filmmakers and right. uh, instead got pregnant uh, almost immediately and had no family out there had nothing and we're like okay so (laughs) we did that for a little while and then uh and then decided it was time to head back to the west coast and and thought it'd be la we were in la for um few weeks and then we ended up living in a small town outside la called ojai and we were there for six months and and loved it and probably would have moved there if we could afford anything Right. Um, and the rest is just kind of a wacky story of us trying to figure out what the heck we wanted to do. We wanted to find a little bit of land. We knew we didn't want to be right in town. Uh, but, but Southern California is just so crazy price wise that if you wanted anything more than like a piece of crap quarter acre on an unbuildable slope, you're right. like, you're, you might as well be in a whole nother state. So that's exactly what ended up happening. <laughs> right. So that's an interesting question because I think a lot of people would say, you know, if I want to be a cinematographer or a director or something in the movie business, I need to move to X, Y, Z. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's your opinion on that? It's true. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. It's absolutely true. And, um, and again, well, what's that? What makes it true? What makes it true is that you need access to people to learn from and you know we might cover this a little bit later but if we end up talking about film school you know i have some ideas about that as well but i I think generally i'm on the camp that you're better off just getting on set um and i think that in order to have access to that you do need to be in a big in a major market um for a couple reasons namely because there's so much work there and there's typically a pretty high crew turnover and people are, are typically climbing ladders pretty quickly in those advancing markets that, um, that you have a chance of actually getting in and doing something. I would right. say that, you know, the, um, that there is an argument to maybe, maybe hit up like a mid tier market for a little while, like a Seattle, a Portland, right. um, Atlanta might even fall into that category and the reason being is that again, you know, if these smaller towns are really like Portland's super busy and, but they're a small crew market, they just don't have, like, they can't support that many jobs. So you get in on a TV show as a PA because you knew somebody from a coffee shop or whatever, mm-hmm. like in a matter of months, you could be assistant in a camera department or in a sound department or in an art yeah. department. Like you could 
you can move very quickly because they just really, really need people. LA and New York are a little bit more saturated, so you might have a harder time getting those initial, those very first few jobs where you're going to meet a bunch of people and learn the ropes of how to how to work on set. That might be actually harder to get into on a in, the, in a really big market, but um, right. there's a certain point, you know, if you're let's say you do what I did and you work on film in something like Seattle or Portland for, for five or six years, um, you're going to hit a glass ceiling and you're going to just realize mm. that you're running out of people to learn from and there's not enough work to support uh, people who actually want to get paid and, and have families there. <laughs> and I think right. that's what we were realizing. It's like, well, if we want to work for free or $100 a day, there's an endless stream of hobbyist filmmakers right. who would be happy to have you on their set. If you yeah. want to actually like get healthcare and maybe consider joining the union or, or even just, you know, make money and pay rent, uh, you're, you're gonna have a much harder time in, in the Seattle, Portland, smaller, smaller world, Austin falls into that category. And then that's going to be the time you have a little bit of a resume. You've been working on film for five years. Uh, now you could go to, now you could go to an LA or New York and, right. and not just, you know, be clamoring for those early jobs like everyone else. Right. So did you go to film school? I did not really. Um, I, I grew up in a small town called Gig Harbor, about an hour and a half outside of Seattle, very suburban slash rural. I mean, when I grew up, there was still like, we didn't live near farms, but there was farms like not that far from us. Um, right. No, no buildings, <laughs> no commercial real estate, just all residences. Uh, it was like an epic day of us young kids on our BMX bikes to get to like the local corner store was like an all day adventure. Um, and, uh, yeah, I remember being like the whole town was like super pumped when we got our first fast food restaurant. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty unique in that sense. Um, do you remember what the fast food restaurant was? I think it was a McDonald's. Yeah. I think yes, they, of course. And now gig Harbor is like <laughs> a very quaint, it's kind of on, um, it's on the water. We didn't live on the water, but the the area that's now getting developed super cute, and um, and so I grew up there where there was no that wasn't even a possibility. Like film didn't even right as as a career choice wasn't even on my radar. Um, and I actually attribute a lot of my early inspiration to uh, there was a Discovery show called uh, Movie Magic. That kind of aired in the mid mid late nineties and early two thousands, probably. And uh, um, and my brothers, I was one of four, uh, two younger brothers and a younger sister, and we'd come home from school and we'd just watch a movie magic. And wow, yeah. it was back, you know, when they were doing all the features were on on movies that weren't really using computers yet. So it was like, oh, this is how they did Blade Runner. This is how they did The Incredible right. Shrinking uh, Women. Like all these. Uh, pop culture, yeah like stuff. pop culture films but like back when people were really doing it and the craft right. it was all technical craft so you know as a eight nine ten eleven year old like my entertainment by you know we were watching pop culture films and my parents they were uh, like very americana film buffs like we watched movies a lot but but silly movies and you know romancing the stone and right uh indiana jones and that kind of thing we weren't watching Truffaut or anything yet. Um, but, uh, so we were watching movie magic. My dad had an old eight millimeter video camera, like 
So we'd grab the cat and build little models out of, uh, you know, Legos and shit and just make and just start telling stories and just making stuff up. We'd also just try to emulate what we saw. So we'd we'd come up with our own version of of, uh, force perspective or makeup Mm. effects or all this stuff. I mean, I remember and this was also I think what's interesting about my upbringing is is also the beginning of personal computers. So, I mean, I remember right. having a Commodore 64 and then my dad brought home like our first PC and all of a sudden this world of software opened up and like the really early days, like pre premiere, uh, yeah. even pre avid, like there was, it wasn't like nonlinear editing. There was, I remember, um, this was probably more like freshman year in high school. There was software that came with these, with basically infrared remotes. And if you had a couple VHS decks, you could use the software to control the decks and just do simple AB linear editing. Right. And, and I was doing all this way before there was any sort of education for me to do it. It was just more curiosity and being a total nerd. And, um, and so, yeah, we just made our own short films. I was experimenting with, you know, green screen in middle school. And I think what I ended up, figuring out how to do is I was a little bit of an opportunist and kind of still am. And, uh, I would, you know, con my teachers into letting me do video essays instead of writing because I didn't, (laughs) I wasn't excited about (laughs) writing essays, but I'd sure as hell go out and grab my brothers and go make a short film explaining some concept or something. Um, and so that kind of was the beginning. And then, um, middle of my freshman year of high school, we moved to a suburb of Seattle about maybe 20 minutes away. And, and all of a sudden everything changed, you know, the, the school we went to, they had like 22, um, different spoken languages. It was a much larger, much more international school and, um, they had vocational studies and I could get on a bus and go to another school in another district and they had media broadcast, um, and, uh, and that's when it, you know, that's when stuff really took off. And and I still remember those teachers and, you know, they were teaching something different. They were like, look, this is not that much different than if you were next door at the auto repair vocational program. This is like teaching you how to get a job. So we were learning just, you know, the nuts and bolts of uh, Avid Media Composer and Amiga Video Toaster and um, just like the all super tech based assuming that we were all going to leave that high school program and maybe get jobs at the news station. Like that was their trajectory. They're like, let's not aim high. Let's just get you guys jobs. (laughs) Um, and, but you know, of course you're not going to be like some, you know, you can't help, but if you're surrounded by that kind of technology and access to like, you know, the Canon XL one and like these new cameras and all this new technology coming out, like we want to go make movies. Like we want to go tell stories and so they weren't teaching storytelling. They were just teaching the gear. And, right. uh, but all the kids were like, no, no, no. Like we have all this access, like let's go tell some stories and, um, which we did. And, um, and then, it, and then I went to the university of Washington. I actually applied for a, was it AFI? So one of those schools, uh, right. and I made the mistake of applying as a freshman and they were like, no, <laughs> um, yeah. and it, in hindsight, it wouldn't have made any sense obviously to do all my like, um, 
you know, my, my pre-major, my pre-degree stuff down there and just paying a bunch of money to be in California for no reason. So I was like, okay, I'll go to UW for a couple of years and then maybe reapply and, and go to a proper film school in LA at some point. Um, and this interesting thing happened. I, I started, at first I just kind of took whatever sounded interesting um, and started building this uh, pretty interesting and in, in looking back, like a pretty unique I wish like I wish they offered a program like this, but I was taking uh, visualization in CAD. I was taking 3D animation. Um, oh, yeah. I was taking. They had this great physics series on. I had to do some science, and I was like, for some reason, like totally phobic of anything science or math, or I just didn't want to like real work hard. I was like every other college kid, yeah. but I was willing to work hard on things that were interesting, and so physics had a series on the science of color and light, and just like love that ate that up um did all those programs and then um through the comparative literature department they had um a film studies program and that was the closest thing we got but we could watch movies and then we got to write about them and i was like hey that's that's something so that was my first two years there and then um then they opened up a new program called dx arts which was a lift from a program that the same professor same whatever you call him, dean of the program, had started in Berkeley. And it was very different. It was more like, the closest thing I can describe it, it's almost like a, an art program or a, like a fine art program or a photography program. It's very self-centered. You're just working on your own personal stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you do these weird works and then you all get together and then it's like traditional crit everyone's like tearing each other's stuff apart and then the teacher's tearing you apart. Um, but it was a chance to actually be making work. And right. so I, I applied to that program and of course it was like pretty hot and everyone was like, this is super cool. Like whatever you could get a, a degree, just like goofing off and, and making weird video art. So everybody applied. I can't remember the numbers, but it was like a thousand applicants and there's like 10 seats. Um, and, and I didn't hear back. And so the day, uh, the beginning of the semester, I went to the program and I'm like, I don't know if there's a mistake, but I didn't get it. I didn't even get a denial. I got nothing. And, um, hmm. the teacher was like, Oh, that's so crazy. Like maybe it got lost. And we chatted just for a minute and he's like, well, you know, this is a really aggressive program and it's very common that people drop. So why don't you just come and hang out for the first couple of days? And I did. And I just came and I just sat in the corner and I just listened. And uh, sure enough, some kids were like, this is crazy and I'm out of here. And, uh, and I snuck in, <laughs> totally yeah. snuck into the department. Um, and so I was there for two years. And they actually have, a, there was a, a PhD program associated with that. And some of my close friends and, and still, uh, and they went on to become filmmakers. But like my TA for the first two years there, Noel Paul, um, it's a great great i think he's doing mostly commercials and music videos now but he he ended up doing their phd program but the, it was it was a special program in that it was kind of the opposite of my time in the vocational program where i um there's zero training it's like here's a one-day master class by someone who doesn't even know what they're talking about trying to describe after effects and right. then you get you get you get three hours of lesson and then it's like, okay, now go do, now go make a short film, go make a video haiku and use After Effects. So yeah. it was really just about like giving us as little instruction as possible, but giving us these really lofty and ambitious projects to do. Um, but they were all like, we all had to 
there was no um, collaboration, which is so anti-film. It's like the opposite. So it was like all, it was, they were like trying to make a bunch of Stan Brackages and we actually like would watch Stan Brackage and that kind of stuff. And like, Mm. here's a guy filming leaves on the ground and then coloring on the film. Like that's, that's what you're supposed to be doing here. Um, But of course uh, there was like this little rebellious group of us who were like, we're just using you as a means to an end. Like we want to be narrative filmmakers and this is all we got. So we'll just, we'll go along with your, you know, crazy program. But we fought tooth and nail to, to work collaboratively, collaboratively. And then by the, um, by the end of our second year, they were letting us start making proper short films and we could assign each other roles and, uh, you know, people were learning specifics in the art department, specifics in camera and lighting and, and then directing. There wasn't really producers. We just kind of all produced our own work. Right. Um, but it was an amazing way to learn because you ended up having to, to really find your own relationship with the medium. And it wasn't based on any sort of traditional structure or like, I, you know, I want to be a career second AC or I want to be a career this. There was none of that. It was like, you right. are going to go find your voice as an artist and then, um, and, and to hell with, with the vocational side of it. Um, and, and so I did that and met a lot of filmmakers through that program. And some of them are still working today. And when I left, um, I had, I had this strange also sub, or I should say alternate life in cars and was really obsessed with early Volkswagen, water-cooled Volkswagen. So I was always like modifying them and pimping them out. And we'd go down to California in the desert and race them. And um, I ended up making a documentary about that culture, that car culture. And that was my final project for the the DX Arts program which ironically was not really artful at all, but, um, but it was kind of also like my farewell to that part of my life. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to really start stick with film. Um, and so after I left the program, we, a couple of us got a call from, um, from a friend of a friend who was in the program and, and this film was getting made in Seattle and they needed help. And, uh, me and my buddy ended up being, essentially art PAs on this film and we had no idea what we were getting into. And it turns out it was, um, the film company, which was this great little startup in Seattle that lasted for a few years. They made Lynn Shelton, one of Lynn Shelton's very first films. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were working on Guy Madden and Guy Madden came to town from Winnipeg and made this film in Seattle. And we were on his set and we had no idea who Guy, <laughs> Guy Madden was. And, right. uh, and me and my buddy wing, uh, ended up, we were just the nerd, probably some of the nerdiest of the bunch. And so we got tasked with building all kinds of crazy rigs and we made like a full scale, uh, lighthouse that could, you know, turn and articulate the lamp with a lever and all this fun stuff. And, um, and Ben Kosolke was the cinematographer on that. And we started hanging out and nerding out together. And Ben's like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to be in camera. And, um, and kind of the rest is history. I ended up doing several projects with him. And in every time he kind of gave me another opportunity to step up. And at a certain point I was, you know, operating alongside him on, you know, early 35 mil movies like Lynn show, like we go way back. I started out as a clapper loader and ended up, um, operating alongside Ben here and there. And so again, like Seattle gives you that gift where that just that story doesn't happen in LA. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't show up as a loader on anything and end up, you know, 
not only seconding but firsting and then operating a 35 mil show all all in a few weeks time right so i'm very grateful for that but you know it also just i think i had the right drive and i also had the right you know i did have all that technical background kind of waiting in the wings and um and i think at dx arts i i directed um all my own work there but um by the end just realized i it wasn't necessarily that I was more comfortable. I just really enjoyed interpreting people's ideas through camera and lighting. And, mm-hmm. and I think that also when you're directing work in those early days, everyone, all the other peers can point at you and be like, your stuff might not be like the best in the class, but your stuff looks the best in the class. And right, so right. I'm going to keep directing, but I want you to do whatever you did on that other job. Um, and so that's kind of how I ended up DPing a lot of shorts in, in DX arts and ended up DPing several films for Noel, um, my TA. And, um, so yeah, that's kind of how it all, that's kind of how it all started. So yeah, no, no f- proper formal film school. I never learned what all right. the jobs were, but you know, w- within months of leaving DX arts, you know, I was, I was on set and I wasn't making really any money, but I was working, I did several films for the film company and then, um, just as assistance, whatever people needed and then worked with Ben for, for a couple of years. There was another great DP in Seattle named Sean Kirby. He did, um, some really great films, police beat and zoo or some of his early Seattle films. He ended up doing a larger film called Cthulhu, um, uh, at least by Seattle standards. And, and then he, he ended up moving to New York and, he does great stuff. He works mostly in high-end docs now, but he was a, a huge role model and mentor of mine. And uh, same kind of story. Started out camera PAing for him, worked my way up to firsting, and uh, and then he's like, "Hey, what do you, what do you want to do?" And um, I told him I wanted to gaff and I wanted to learn lighting. And so in the next film, like he let me gaff like Zoo, which was like a big wow. big job for him and a big deal for me. And I think people saw right away that I was going to work really, really hard. And maybe right. if I didn't have the experience that was going to be ma- that was going to be made up for just with sheer ambition. Um, right. and, and that's kind of how it all started. Yeah. I think that's, it's interesting because I can even just hear it in the way you tell the story is you have like an unusual, <clears throat> you have an unusual drive to, and sort of like an obsession that you see in like people who obviously really love what they do. Right. But I think it's, I think something's interesting is is like you took like your situation like not being in LA or New York or whatever and you can look at that and be like that was sort of an advantage for me because I'm sure we like we've probably both met people that work or you know day players in LA or New York and they have it's not a sense of entitlement or like rudeness or whatever but they just have so much more access yes but people who don't live there you know, if they have the sort of drive that you have, like you can bring that into LA and like scare a bunch of people and like make a shit, make shit happen, you know? And like, absolutely. um, And they're not used to it and they're used to doing things the way that the industry tells them to do it. And I know so many PAs in LA that have, you know, the same lofty ambitions, want a DP, want to write, want to direct. Um, and yet they'll, they PA or, you know, or they maybe do, um, maybe eventually they get to like, coordinating on commercials but uh right it's harder to to be that reckless in a weird way and you know the thing that also was potentially different and and i should say it just so it doesn't sound 
uh, like I'm dogging on everyone else's circumstances. Right. I all through college and even after college, you know, I held a job down at a, at a mechanic right. and I was like going to work and like getting really dirty. Like I remember coming home and hating oil and grease under my fingernails. And it was just like, whatever. But you know, it was something I was mildly interested in. I had this whole history in cars. And so I, I held the job down and I was really short shooting. The other, the other secret that Seattle lets you in on is that, man, if you're willing to work for free, like you could do whatever you want and people are just so happy to have you. And, uh, so I found myself, right. you know, being a camera assistant, having really no, um, no real to speak of. And, and so, okay. Uh, I just want to clarify this cause I think it is interesting and I think it might help other people coming up is like, you have to be playing multiple angles all at the same mm -hmm. time. Um, so for example, I was learning, I was teaching myself editing. I was like, you know, from a very early age, I was learning graphic design. I was learning title design. I was just messing around with stuff. Um, so in high school, I was also taking art. I was also taking graphic design and like, you know, my dad was in real estate and he knew all kinds of small businesses. And so I'd like find ways to like, Hey, do you think I could like talk these people into let me do some right. graphic design work for them? I remember like walking down like this pretty ghetto part of Seattle, like north of the university, and it's like where the hair salons and the car stereos are. And and I like walked into this car stereo shop because I was shopping and noticed that they had some of their own branded stuff. They were making like sound dampening material at the time, and I was like, yo, like let me like draft up some graphic design stuff for you. Let me like rebrand your stuff. Right, and yeah. that ended up being like a whole other crazy chapter for several years. I like ended up joining this company and built their website and did a bunch of graphic design mm -hmm. for them. So I was like, I think what I'm getting at is like going, you don't want to be like, I'm going to be a filmmaker. I'm going to make money making film. This is my life choice. And this is all I'm going to do right now. You can do that, but man, that is so dangerous because in order to advance in film, you're better off gaining experience at the expense of not getting paid. You know what I mean? So you're better off like having other ways like, yeah, go be a waiter, go do something else. And then just PA, just work for free. And, and I found other things like kind of circling the industry. I am, um, you know, I was able to get a hold of a camera and my parents knew my, my, nannies were now older and they were getting married and i was like hey let me shoot your wedding like let me just practice right. so i shot tons of weddings i did photography for weddings i shot videos for weddings um those turned into shooting small little promotional videos for local businesses um i started getting into like shooting you know the now like the equivalent would be like people make videos and use drones and shit to like sell a house on right, online right. so it's like going out and just doing that kind of work because you're just building you're building you're building reels eventually that turns into like oh now i need to get learn how to use sound gear because i got to interview this guy who's talking about a product and i'm gonna cut the whole thing and i'm gonna do all the titles and it's like i'm getting paid nothing i'm getting like 500 bucks and i just put right. so many hours into like a five minute video but i was doing all of that and holding down a job so that I could afford to do those things. And then um, that's what allowed me, because a lot of guys, a lot of guys and gals, like out of school, 
immediately had to get some work. And they wanted to be film related to justify all the cost of those film schools they paid for. And a lot of people end up just being stuck at school. And you end up being a TA at school, and then you end up being like an assistant, and then you end up being a professor or whatever, because that's what you do. And I know so many people out of film school who just end up going back to school because they can't. Because they can't, they have those student loans. Like no one's going to go and take two years off paying for free. But that's exactly what I was able to do. And so I, um, and then it was like, hey, you got a forty-eight hour film festival film you want to do, dude? I'll shoot that for free. I got, I got nothing but time this weekend. And um, so it was just real building and real building and real building for years. And this is before like DSLRs. This is before it was like that easy. Now it's like, man, you have no excuse to not go out there and shoot a bunch of great looking stuff because right. you have access to all this technology. Um, so I just want to clarify that because I think by playing all those different roles, what I found myself was that, you know, four or five years after college, I had all this onset experience because I was willing to work for 50 bucks a day. Whereas all my friends were like, I can't do this anymore. Like my parents think I'm a drug dealer. I don't make any money. Like they don't know what I do all day long. They don't know why I'm out all night, you know, working on overnight sets. And meanwhile, I'm like, no, just stick it out. I think this is going to work out. We just have to keep right. doing this and keep, you know, building our resume. And, and I just found myself like having a huge amount of experience in a very short time uh, because I was just willing to do it for cheap. And then when, uh, and then all the while I'm shooting, just shooting little stuff here and there. Um, so that way I was able to amass both sides. I wasn't stuck in an LA industry where I'm only learning, you know, how to be a good on set yeah. PA and not learning anything right. else and getting your wrist slap if you go and hang out with the camera department. Right. Um, and at the same time, I now had something resembling a reel and people could see that and see that I was competent with a camera. And then I started getting short offers and I was shooting 16 mil shorts. I was shooting 35 shorts. Right. Um, and, uh, and then found myself in this place where I was like, you know what? Like, I think I'm ready. I was gaffing mostly for, for work at that point. I had quit the car, <laughs> the car, car repair shop luckily and was, and was crewing full time and, um, gaffed a few films and we, they were getting up there. One million, one and a half million. Right. Um, we were meeting NYU kids who were doing their thesis films, but they had connections in Seattle. Like Seattle's an interesting place because it's a destination. And this is before you had um, this is before you had all the tax incentives. So people were just coming to Seattle because there was a lot to offer. And right you got to meet a lot of different crew from a lot of different places. You weren't getting cool jobs. You weren't getting DP jobs because they were bringing all those people, but you were getting access to a lot of different working styles and seeing stuff. Um, so I did that for a few years. And then my wife and I, my wife went to another, um, she went to SEC, Seattle Central, which had a more proper film school, which is way too bad that they closed it. But um, they that school was the one turning out like the more proper, properly trained kids and um so we were like let's let's just go for it let's move to new york let's live super cheap and you know and i'm gonna have my identity switch i'm just gonna show up and be a dp i'm not gonna do anything else this is a really hard step that some people don't have to take but i think a lot of people emotionally need to take and i've known a lot um a really good friend of mine and somebody if you haven't should definitely put on your podcast adam mcdade he went to dx arts with me as well he's now living in new york um it's a very successful DP. And, um, 
and he had, you know, we both were going through those same growing pains, like, man, the works in being an juicer, you know, the works right. being crew, how do I, but emotionally I need to say, look, this is what I'm doing. This is my calling. I think I'm good enough. I think I'm ready. How do you do that? Um, it's very hard. And, uh, but I think again, learning how to live very frugally, you can make those sort of bold choices and start taking whatever comes your way. I mean, I was doing like when I first moved to New York, it was just like the worst stuff. But, uh, and then, you know, thought I had it made when I was shooting second camera behind the scenes for Macy's photo shoots. Like that was my (laughs) bread and butter. And, but I met some really great people, you know, and, and, uh, and it was fine. It was a job, but you know what? Every day or a lot of days out of the month I was shooting, I was using a camera and, um, and that just slowly, and then, you know, people start paying attention. And this other funny thing happens, and I'm sorry, I'm spending so much time on oh, Seattle in, in the beginning years, but now that I think about it more, the more fascinating it is to me. But so this other thing that happens with a small market is that when you leave and you have the appearance of making it be, in quotes, because you're now shooting behind the scenes video shoots for Macy's, now you're like exotic back home. Like now you're like, oh man. This guy went to New York and he's making it. So immediately after leaving Seattle, I started getting offers. I went back to Seattle two summers in a row to shoot features there um, with really nothing more than shorts, a documentary, and a super, super low budget feature I basically did for free. With yeah. no lighting, um, so with that, with that only that behind me, I moved to New York and then immediately started getting feature offers from people who who knew me and saw that I was was quote unquote making it. Um, that's, that's it's so interesting. Yeah, it's a crazy thing that would never happen in LA. Like if you if you're working right. your tail off in LA for ten years and then moved to New York, they're like good riddance. <laughs> you're not gonna like yeah. all of a sudden be getting calls from your producers and being like, hey, good job. Like you're really doing it now. So it's a yeah. funny it's a funny thing that's specific to that world. But I think that would work in Austin. I think that would work in Portland to an extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, and it's a funny thing to consider for for all the listeners who are like just starting out. Like how do I do this? What are people doing now that is negatively taking away from their work when it comes to something like what you just said, which is like, what's my brand or perception of me and like my career and like the type of work that I want to get are people, do you find that people are worrying about um, the wrong things when it comes to how they actually will be successful in that? It's a, it's a great question, and there's probably no way for me to answer it without upsetting people. <laughs> but, um, you know, in a times of change, man, like it's just different. Once, once Twitter and Instagram and all that shit, like it changed the scene, um, and it's mm-hmm. changed it in such profound ways that uh, I don't think any of us are really going to understand. But or or the, those of us who do understand it are, are probably doing way better than me. Um, I remember this moment on one of my Macy's jobs and I was second camera, like fixing some audio gear or something. And I looked over and this dude walks in to set. and these are like really high end photography. There's like, these photographers are getting like 30 grand a day. Some people are getting, some people are charging per click. Once I heard that, I'm like, wow. And it's like (laughs) 10 grand every time they hit the shutter. I was like, wow. Um, and they would set up these big black cards when they were doing that. Like you could never see what they were doing anyway. So we were just, whatever, doing our thing. 
eating a lot of crafty. And I look over and this dude walks in and he's super well dressed and he has this like super cool hat and he's got this like Eastern European accent. And and I, I was trying to figure out what year this was. This was early 2000s. Uh, and the dude walks in with not one, but two iPhones. And these were probably iPhone 4s at the wow. time. I don't know. Maybe, maybe S's. I don't know. Maybe he was that cool. Um, and this dude's job was to to take iPhone pictures. And he was hanging out with the with the, all the models. And he had all these apps. And he was like, look at all my cool filters. And everyone was just like having the best time ever. And, and I don't yeah. even... I don't even, this might've even been pre Instagram. This was probably all just for Facebook or just on, you know, but Macy's knew they were already like, they were already that ahead of the game that like, this is where this is going. And this is what's going to get attention. This is what's going to look edgy. And so this dude comes in with, with a couple iPhones and I don't even know what he made that day, but I remember coming home to my wife and I was like, you know, the craziest thing just happened. And I don't, (laughs) I think like the game has changed and she's like, well, and I'm like, and he probably made, you know, two or three times what I did, probably more than that. And she's like, yeah. well, it seems like you need to get a cool hat and a good accent. And yeah. to your point, perception is so rooted in this culture. There was I, there was a fantastic video. I don't know if you ever saw it. I, I don't know if I could find it now. It was on Vimeo for a while, and it was like just totally totally laughing at dps and like how hipster we are how cool we are like we're the coolest kids on set <laughs> and he and it like started with this dude like riding his fixie in and using his light meter and he was all like styled and it was just so funny and they were just totally making fun of us and i was like you know what it's like dead on it's dead on yeah. Yeah. and it's different than the dudes 20 or 30 years maybe they were cool kids too at one point but man like it was just a different job and right. the you know the people coming up under Connie Hall and the people coming up under Tack and like all the there's just it was a different world and now it's kind of like man if you look hot and you had a, a 5D Mark III and you had a drone and or you had a Red One like you were a badass and you would get work and I remember this was even happening back in college this or maybe right after college, you know, I thought I was the cool kid and I was crewing and I was on all these jobs and, and this young dude shows up, never a seed in his life, gets this AC job, um, but he owns a red one and his red one was on the job and he was making all kinds of money and I was just watching this go down. And I was like, son of a bitch. And then he ended up shooting for, and I ended up writing about it because it was like funny and sad and great all at the same time. But I wrote for filmmaker for a couple of years and, um, one of these stories was was about this guy who's actually a fantastic i love him and he's a great dp now but at the time he's just getting started but because he had that camera uh he kind of got front of the line access and so uh my ta noel i'd been doing all this work with him i come to find out he and this dude got together and shot this video that just blew up and changed noel's life changed the dp's life i can say it michael reagan he's a great great guy um and uh, changed both of these dudes' careers overnight. And it was just a smart concept, great song. And, uh, and he shot it. And I'd shot all the Noel stuff, you know, but he shot it because he had a red one and it looked hot. It was brand new, 4K, looked so good. And, uh, and I was like, damn, you know? And from there, like Mike's career just skyrocketed. Um, and in a weird way, the camera, that access to technology, 
got him experience. So maybe those first few jobs, maybe he stumbled a little bit because he didn't have the background and he didn't have the crew experience. But he was also smart enough and actually just full on talented enough that he was able to recover from that, right. learn, learn the tools of the trade, learn how to communicate with those departments. And now he's like doing huge stuff. So right. I saw that all go down and I was like, I can either be bitter about it or I can accept that this is kind of part of the industry. And, uh, and at the time was running a very small little grip, um, thing in Seattle and had a small truck and was just helping out me myself really. And my, and my other indie friends uh, sold all that when I moved to New York and you know what, got a red one package. And honestly, that's exactly what got me my first few jobs there. And, um, and looking back, if you go backwards in time, because I think at the time I was like, this is kind of a bullshit way into the industry. But again, I'm not going to be bitter about it. I just have to like, you know, fight it. If you can't, if you can't beat them, join them. But then I went back in time and I was reading some great, you know, history on some DPs and, that's exactly how uh, Vilmos and like a lot of these guys started. They showed up in a van in LA and they had a 16 mil camera and they're like, we yeah. can, we, we got stuff. Yeah. Let's get to work. And so this yeah. isn't an old thing either. And like a lot of the DPs. Yeah. I mean, a lot of my favorite DPs started out with cameras. They were cameramen right. because they had cameras and you hired them with their gear and all that stuff. Uh, so yeah, it's, this is off topic, but I think, again, it's worth mentioning because um, now, again, that, that technology is you don't have to own a Ren1. A Ren you can make great-looking images with, with something that costs less than $3,000. So, right. so that side of things is different. But to get back to your point, the branding thing, and I think the gear is part of that brand, right? If you own, hmm. the, if you own the Epic, if you own the Alexa, if you own the Amira, that is part of your brand. Like you, it's also a symbol of success. I knew a very young DP who like spent everything he had on and yeah. on a on an Alexa XT like with the four three sensor and all that like right when it came out, man. And uh, and I think he ended up selling it pretty quick because he couldn't couldn't possibly get the work to support that kind of investment. But like that was all part of the branding. Um, and now I think it's it's that it's equipment compounded by social media. And if your Instagram pictures don't look baller, if you don't, if you're not like not only posting amazing photos, but also amazing set photos and showing all the cool kit you're using, like that's all part of this whole thing. Um, and, and so do you fall into that? Uh, oh man, I struggle with it so much. And I, you know, this is other thing that I guess we can talk about now. We can talk about later, but um, you know, as I'm as now, I've been doing this for a long time. There are there's different arcs. Everyone's got a different arc, and someone said something important, which I would say repeat now, which is never read biographies because your path is never going to be like someone else's. Right. And I can point to some of the other, you know, folks that you've even had on your podcast that I'm like, how, like this trajectory is insane. And right. yes, they're very talented, but how on earth did they go from that to that? And you know what? That's not up for me to decide. And, uh, right. and I'm on my own trajectory that by some people's standards is like, wow, you're skyrocketing. And I'm like, no, 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 dude, this person's skyrocketing. Like this is, right. this is the, this is the model. I'm not that cool. I'm not, I'm whatever they have. Like I'm not that. And maybe I don't have right. enough Instagram followers. Maybe I don't, you know, whatever it is. Um, 
you will struggle with that. And in, the mo- and in a weird way, it's, um, I shouldn't say, this is not fair. I want to say it's like it's, it's almost harder to be successful. Once you get a little taste of success and you have some films that get out there and people are like recognizing your name, you're starting to get called to do jobs. You're not begging anymore. You're not working for free. Now people are calling you for you to say, hey, will you shoot my movie? That's a crazy right. feeling. There's so many people out there. There's so many great yeah. shooters out there. So why does this person want to talk to me? Like that's, that's crazy. Um, and once that starts happening, man, like you gotta, you gotta keep your ego in check. It's some scary shit can go down. And all of a sudden, like, no matter what, no matter what films I'm getting offered, I'm still not cool enough. And I'm like, well, how come this other DP is getting that offer? I'm not getting that offer. Is it my agent? Is it this? Is it that? Is it blah, blah, blah? And like, you know what? Like you gotta just draw, you gotta make a, a stand for yourself and say, I'm just going to do what I'm doing. And maybe that's not being the coolest kid on the block, but what it is, is, is this and this other thing. And, and the fact that all the people who work with me, we had a great time and, and I'm proud of the work and you have right. to like, I wouldn't say, I don't even call, consider the thing. It's not lowering the bar, but in maybe a very like <laughs> Zen practice way, it's kind of like accepting and not only accepting, but enjoying like, the niche that you are in and right. and just working hard there for a while and typically good things will come out of that so for a while i was just doing my you know my 500,000 my 50,000 i was just doing my small movies and i was like i could do this i know how to work with small crews i know how to work with without many resources and i just naturally found myself graduating not cuz i was trying not cuz i was like banging down directors door yeah. begging for work but that um that appeals so then you this just, thing happens, and this is also work. a branding thing, is the festival. So, okay, right. I'm working, I'm working on, I'm, I made a little movie called Bass Ackwards. We were the, it was the first time Sundance had done the next category. We got into the next, like, by, on that level, like, wow, we are like, we're aces. We're just like unbelievable. We get to go to the Sundance, it's my first feature, like, we're hot shit for a second. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, whoa, whoa, this isn't like, this isn't like a one-off thing. Now, every movie I do has to be, I have to be at least at this level uh, because I need to be going upward only. Right. And then uh, the next film I do gets into competition. Oh, shit. Now, like, you know, you see what's happening. Yeah. The bar isn't always moving. It's a moving target, and you're never going to be good enough. Um, and then at a certain point, it's like, pfft, forget about Sundance. My films have to be going to Cannes. And well, now my movies have to be you know, nominated for Academy Awards. Like it's totally preposterous, but this is the ego that you're Never dealing satisfied. with. You're, this is the shit that you're going to be dealing with as you become successful. And, you know, I will say that it's not for everybody. I've backed out largely. Like now, if you go on my Instagram account, it's like, we're starting a homestead. It's like woodworking. Yeah. You're gonna, yeah, you're gonna find me like building benches. <laughs> you're gonna find pictures of dead rattlesnakes. You're gonna find like really weird shit because um, I found that when I'm not working, I'm healthier and happier if I'm doing something so different. Right. I think if I was in LA and every day I'm not working, I'm staring at a billboard for a job that. I think I should have got offered or I was, didn't even know about. And, oh, you know, it's just like, it is so toxic. And so I realized if I remove myself from that industry, I go down to LA all the time. I do my job. I work. I meet great people. I do the best job I can. And then yeah. I 
get out of there. And I go and I stare at a valley with no humans on it. And, um, and that for me is so peaceful and, and regenerative that I can, I'm ready. I, I'll be ready for the next job. I won't feel beaten down and crushed that I wasn't invited to like so-and-so's party, you know? Right. This musical break is brought to you by Musicbed. This is a band called Mountain Range. Producer Stuart Thompson mixes elements of post-rock, ambient, and electronic music all into one sound. Instead of me trying to tell you more about it, I'd rather just listen some more. Check out Mountain Range and other similar artists at musicbed.com. And don't forget to use code GOOD at checkout for 20% off your next purchase. This episode is also brought to you by Plot Devices. Founded in 2017 by filmmaker Seth Worley, Plot Devices makes tools that help writers and directors develop their stories, like the Story Clock Workbook. Designed for screenwriters, the Story Clock Workbook helps you turn your ideas into stories by picturing your story like a clock and using symmetry to extract new ideas from what you already have. When you get stuck, the inside covers of the workbook are full of writing resources, like general story structure and genre variations for quick references. And because there's more to your story than just the plot, there's a whole set of tools and exercises that will help you thoroughly rip off your inspiration. Figure out any exploitable resources you have and determine your weaknesses so you can lean into them. I personally use the Story Clock Workbook on every single project I do. It's an invaluable resource that helps me be more creative when working on stories and scripts. Learn more about the Story Clock Workbook at plotdevices.co. That's plotdevices.co. And get 20% off your first order with code GOOD20 at checkout. Now, let's get back to the show. Well, did life so strange... You know, in that sense, because for so long to get started, to get to where you are now, you had to hustle the shit out of everything, right? Mm-hmm. And then now you sort of can reprieve from, you know, that world because you, you know, I think it happens, like you said earlier, when someone, when you, when your career changes from you're not calling anybody, you're not trying to, you're not a one man band anymore, but people are calling you to do something, whether you're a director or a cinematographer, yeah. they're calling you because they, they like your work. That's a huge shift. Huge. Like now you're trying to find like a piece between things, you know, and like, that's so interesting how you need that hustle and that passion, that sort of like aggressive obsession for a long time. And then there's a point in which it's actually better if you don't have that, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, I never thought about it until you've just, stated it that way but um for a little while and and i'm nowhere near this i'm just going to be totally up front but like for a short while i got really obsessed with um there's a small subset of the internet of these personal finance gurus and they are like super nerds that have figured out how to play the system and essentially retire really really early um Hmm. and it's not about getting super rich it's about living really really frugally 
and saving huge ratios of your income. And, and then it's just a numbers game. And if you're investing that, uh, it doesn't even really matter how you're investing it, but if you're putting that money away, then it's just a num- it's just a numbers game. It's just math. And within a certain number of years, if you can maintain that very frugal standard of living, you don't have to work anymore. And for some of these guys, they started when they were 25 and they were done by the time they were 35. And can you imagine mm-hmm. not having to work a day except when you want to by the time you're 35 years old just because you happen to find a blog when you were 25 and like trying to figure out what to do with your life out of college. Like incredible stories like that. And um, so I got really into it for a little while and like <laughs> we're just not, I don't think I'm, I'm ultimately, I don't think I'm that person and I don't have that conviction about it yet. I'm, I'm trying to employ some other strategies and, and who knows, maybe by the time I'm, you know, 60, I'll have something figured out. But, um, right. but it's the same, it's the same attitude, right? So instead of investing money, I was investing time. Right. And I did so much and I lived so frugally um, that I was putting everything I had into that industry, into my education, into learning, into crewing. And, and now I can say that, yeah, I'm, I'm probably not in early retirement uh, career wise, but I'm at that early investment has paid off in dividends. And now it has manifested a situation where I don't have to live in town. I don't have to drive and, and do behind the scenes videos anymore. Um, I, I get to, I get to pick and now we get scripts all the time. I get script, I get multiple scripts a month. It's an incredible feeling. It's incredible. And it's, yeah, it's super cool. It's also very nerve wracking and it's very unsettling because, um, you can easily get into this little like sp- inner spin of bad feelings really that are unmanaged of like, um, Oh, well these scripts that I would have done a few years ago, like they're not cool enough now. They're not good enough now. Like how am I, how do I get to keep this machine going? How do I keep getting bigger and better and better and higher, you know, rates and all this stuff. It's, um, it is a slippery slope and you have to be careful. Um, I feel incredibly lucky that I've, um, I feel like I've made pretty good decisions and I've also just gotten super lucky. Uh, 20th century woman's a perfect example I mean, Casper Tuxen is a phenomenal DP and he was Mike's DP for seven years. They worked together. And when Casper took another film, um, oh gosh, I can't remember who it was for now. I mean, you know, an equally Did he shoot uh, beginners. He, he shot beginners and then he was due, he was scheduled to shoot 20th century and then ended up right. taking another film with another equally talented director. And Mike found himself for the first time in seven years, like, and they did all these huge Facebook campaigns, like, Casper was a dude. And all of a sudden, Mike's like, I don't have a DP. And Mike likes to go find interesting people if he's put in that position. But it wasn't his first choice, right? So I'm, and I hadn't really done anything at the time. I had, like, I had, I had Kumiko and I had Green Room, which I don't even know if Mike saw. I mean, that made a big splash for a lot of people, but I, I don't think that's in Mike's. Well, you shot both those in 2016, right? So I don't think uh, something like that. Yeah, one was was the year prior, and um, but yeah, I think that was when we started getting more consecutive Sundance uh, right. films, and and but Mike had really only seen Kumiko, and we talked on the phone and kept talking on the phone, and uh, and I was already living in Oregon by that point, and. Uh, and we just clicked and I came down to LA and, and got this opportunity to work with this phenomenal filmmaker that I really, yeah. you know, by any other standard, probably shouldn't have got that. There was so many more people qualified for that film than I, 
Um, what a great movie. Yeah, like, really special. Great movie. Really special. And being able to work with Annette Benning and Elle Fanning and Greta yeah. and like just uber talented people all around. And uh, yeah, you, I think, you know, what, what I was getting at is that as long as you're keeping your ego in check with just like utter gratitude and gratefulness for even this, it's like a friend of mine early on was like, it's like, you know, it's like Disneyland. It's like every film we get, it's like a roller. We get to get up. We get to get back on the ride. And every time, as soon as you get off of the ride, you just go back and wait in line. And you're just hoping yeah. for the next chance to get to get on that roller coaster. And it's so, so so thrilling. And you know, to be fair, I flash forward now. You know, I'm, I'm you know been doing this paid for more than 20 years now. And uh, now I'm I'm at a point where I'm grateful for that roller coaster, but I also know that I that I can't do that anymore. I have two kids and a family and, and right. the beginnings of a homestead. I have to be so much more picky about the work. What, what job, honestly, can I say it's worth leaving my family for four months? All these boxes have to be get checked. Yeah. I remember hanging out with Bradford and we got to talk a lot about this. Um, just, you know, how the family dynamics of it all, this industry is not designed for families to succeed. And, and one of the, I think the messiest things you realize with this industry is once you start meeting, you know, really, really successful people and hanging out with them and talking about their personal lives, you quickly find out that they're all in utter disaster. Uh, all your heroes, all the best DPs in the world, <laughs> maybe save for a few outliers have just like abysmal family relationships. And, um, and I talked to Rachel Morrison about this and I talked to a lot of like us up and comers and, um, and I was like, I just, I, I can't do that. And if that's what success is, then I'm going to, I'm going to do something else or I'm going to find this, or I just won't be that cool. You know, I'll do the, I'll wow. do the middle, I'll do the, I'll, I'll be second string and, uh, and that's okay. And there's a strategy involved in second string that's now worked for us on a several occasions. And Mike's that perfect example. If you are available and pretty good then when a really great director loses their really great dp you're now in this small pool of people who aren't working who can afford not to be working uh that are now available for stuff and that continues to be a pretty key part of my work um honestly and it's you know, I don't know, you know, every story is different. And even how I got green book is just crazy. But like, I'm always kind of just waiting in the wings and I'm doing ads and I'm doing other small things here and there. So I can just be ready when that feature that I would normally not even get an interview for. They're like, Oh shit, we lost this guy. We have three weeks. Who's it going to be? Well, dude, when you mentioned Green Book, I do have to say congratulations. Well, thank like, you. Such a, a huge, I mean, I, I can't even, I'm not even trying to describe it. I'm sure what you're feeling, but um, that does propose a pretty interesting question of what changes when you um, shoot a movie that wins an Academy Award. What changes yeah. for you? Yeah, right. Um, more, more brain damage than anything else. Uh, it's funny. It's like, yeah, it's the first thing that a lot of people ask like, Oh, well you must be set now. Like you must be getting like heaps of scripts. You must, you right. know, like you should, you shot a best picture. Like that's the list of people. I mean, I, I forget what the, I mean, it's like 
there's 50 of us or whatever, I don't know, 60. There's some, there's like a very small number of people who've done that. Um, and it is an amazing opportunity. It's crazy. And it blindsided me. Like we, we knew we had a good film. We knew we were going to have like, you know, a Tiff darling. We knew, you know, once the golden globes happened, it was like, Oh oh, wow, this might actually have some legs bigger than we, than we were aware (laughs) of. Um, but you know, it's, uh, I can't say it's, changed things all that much and i've actually had some interesting conversations with my with my agents about this very issue like what should we expect and they're like you know it's um the biggest thing is that just uh where my name might have not been before it is now and maybe i'm still 10th on a list but i'm on a list somewhere and someone knows my name and they saw my name on a screen somewhere yeah Uh, and and in a in a way that that is the feature strategy it's you're either trying to make a movie that is so audacious it's going to like take sundance by storm and be the next whiplash and just get everybody everybody's going to see it you want to you want to make movies that get attention um that doesn't have to be a big budget film that doesn't have to be an anything film it just needs to be a good film or something that's challenging an idea or um, or, or it just hits the right chord at the right time. And honestly, even when Green Book first came out, it was so quiet and not that many people saw it. And then it just had this really, I mean, so well executed by Universal, but just this brilliant release strategy where it just kept snowballing and kept snowballing. Hmm. You know, I think the first week, it really made nothing. Second week, it had made nothing. And I was like, oh gosh, like we didn't do it. We didn't do it. We made a cool TIFF film, but that's it. And then fast forward a couple months and it's like, holy cow, like this thing's unstoppable. Um, And so, yeah, I think that, um, no, like not a lot has changed. I can say we are, I'm, you know, maybe the scripts are a little larger, but you know, again, I'm competing with really flashy, really aggressive, younger DPs who can still really hustle. And yeah those guys and gals are going to get those, you know, they're, that's their thing. They've made that call. They're like, I'm going to be this career, this, and maybe they're going to have families later on in life. But like right now they're in their twenties, thirties, they are going to go all in. Um, and, and they're going to be the ones that, that get the, but you know, but I might be second string to them. And if so, and so, you know, lost, it's, you know, even took an even bigger job, an even better job with somebody, uh, and left a really cool project. I might now be, you know, second or third on that list. Ironically, I kind of like, I think there's some parallels between me and and green book in that way that we won because we weren't first on anyone's list. Um, Roma was and, and Bohemian Rhapsody and, and some of these really, really great films but we were like second and third on everybody's list. Hmm, and, right. and that's why Green Book ended up winning um, because of that preferential ballot. And I think there's an argument to say that uh, that strategy in, in film as a, as a creative isn't that bad because I have a pretty large network now of commercial directors that, you know, maybe I'm not making the sexiest stuff on their reel. And, and I joke with them all the time, like, well, now that I've won an Academy Award, like, I just want to make something worthy of your reel. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like the joke is that like, uh, but I'm getting consistently higher. Like I'm showing up. I'm awesome to be with. I think I'm pretty cool. 
to hang out with. I'm really easy going on set. I love to collaborate. I'm never, you know, it's never about me or what I'm trying to do. It's like, how do I support them? How do I support their vision? How do I, and that's in a weird way. That's, I think that's how I got Jeremy's movie. I think Jeremy had access to some pretty great DPs that would have come in on green, green room. But I was in a position where I was like, you know, I will, just be, and he's a great shooter. He could have shot that movie, um, but he needed right. an ally. He just needed someone to like go fight some battles, go to the producers, yeah. like just get this film made the way he wanted to. And I was and like, Jeremy I will be shot. Jeremy Blue shot Blue Ruin. Yeah, right? he shot Blue Ruin. This beautiful yeah, movie, movie, super beautiful yeah. movie. And um, so I've, in that sense, I feel like I've also learned that being the chameleon, not having a brand or a stamp aesthetically, has also been integral because it's made me very i'm really pliable i I can i can kind of do anything i think at this point i've done broad comedy i've done you know 20th century women i've done green room i think that we this is another strategy topic but um once you start getting into that place where people are coming to you with scripts and you're like wow this is overwhelming and so cool um I decided early on that I wasn't going to repeat myself or get stuck in a genre. Hmm. I knew too many great indie DPs that did one or two romantic comedies and like, that's what you're getting offered (laughs) forever. So I would do, you know, Kumiko and then Green Room and then The Trust and then Rough Night, like really different films that no one could pin me down on. In that way, I kind of just remain this nebulous, open shooter who is easygoing and can kind of get along with anybody and happen to, you know, build it to shoot in just about any genre. Um, And and I think that's also, it's been key. It's actually been a, maybe it's hurt my my branding, if that's like a thing that I'm clearly not aiming for. But um, it's not like, oh, you're that guy. You do that really cool thing or you're like awesome at at action films or whatever. Like I'm not, so I won't probably dominate in any one of these genres. But again, I'm I'm just super flexible. And I found for the most part, directors kind of like that because um, they feel like, okay, this is going to be a very open collaboration. I'm not hiring a DP who comes in and says, bam, this is what I do. It was funny when I was in DX Arts and had one meeting with my, with the dean of the program at one point, and uh, I forget the words he used, but he was kind of making fun of me because I'm like, like the blue collar version of a very highly intellectual art form. <laughs> you know, it's like I I was working on cars and I was like yeah. whatever. Like we built a boxing ring in our backyard. Like I'm not a I'm not a redneck, but you know, if you came and visited me right now, you a lot of people from from either coast would probably have that would have that <laughs> assumption. Um, right. I think that I yeah, you got to find you got to find the thing that that piques your interest and keeps you going. I've been lucky in that I've found it in all kinds of things. I think my, I think my time with, with car culture taught me a, a hell of a lot. And it was all aesthetic. I mean, it's about how fast you're going. It's the, it's the technical side as well. It's like how, right. how many horsepower are you managing to pull out of a tiny little gas engine that was never designed to like even last more than 10 years. And here we are 25 years later, like, pimping them out turbos and shit like that's uh there's a technical side of that as well um but that's also mated with um with aesthetics 
and right. you're either going for like a super cool stock look you're doing all this custom body work you're looking at paints you had friends that like knew upholstery like in a weird way it's filmmaking because you have friends that are really specific in certain things and and you can collaborate with them um when you have an idea you're like oh cool i want to do this to my car how would i do that and like you would know like okay i'm not going to call this person who does upholstery i'm going to call this person who like designs and builds their own fuel injection programs like there's all that there and um and uh and then like i was saying before you know my parents were we did watch a lot of films and and i think i was heavily influenced by you know some looking back some cool stuff like early spielberg like or you know lucas and like some really smart really kind of like kind of blue collar filmmaking like they tended to to be very efficient in their storytelling um but like you said kind of just nail it and whatever genre they were doing they kind of just nailed it and looking at you know the crazy circumstances for the first indiana jones and and how that movie should have never really happened as well as it did and uh just really, really smart filmmaking. And it right. wasn't super arty and it wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't studying eight and a half. I mean, not until much later and, uh, and kind of missed a lot of the French new wave, uh, until much later. And, um, yeah, just enjoyed like quality Americana entertainment because back then it was made with craft and love. Now I, it's harder to, to use those descriptors but i think right. back then it really was and some of those films in the 80s and, and 90s were just real treasures um yeah because they weren't trying to be art either they were just like you know what we're just going to make some really fun stuff to watch and we're going right. to do it smart and uh um and so i think i pull a lot from that and i think a lot of my aesthetic drive comes from that i tend toward simpler more focused storytelling and i think that's where pete and i ended up really getting along he wasn't you know, Pete doesn't come from a world of making flashy anything. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, well, this is the best looking Pete Fairley movie ever, uh, because I just right. wasn't on his radar. And I don't think that's even a, you know, a negative thing to say about Pete. It's just his world has always been story and performance. And man, like my brothers and I ate that stuff up growing up, like dumb and dumber. Like how yeah. it's crazy to me that so many years later, I'm like sitting across from this guy talking about a drama that he's going to do. And, um, very special that that came together. But, um, you know, that coming up with crazy camera moves and all this stuff like that's not his forte. And it's also just not what strikes him is particularly interesting. And so when we started working on green book, it, um, it always stems from story and it always stemmed from character and how to best to communicate those performances. And, um, and I, you know, I really respect that. Does it make for super glamorous, sexy work? That's going to like launch me into the next stratosphere of DPs. No, it's not right. like it wasn't really on anyone's list for best cinematography. I, I shouldn't say that it actually was. And I was like blown away and super excited and grateful, but for the most part, it wasn't a, visually arresting film was, i think it was just a well-made film and uh it's cool to be part of something where no one's the attention is on the story it's not about any one thing it's not about the art department it's not about like super over-the-top camera moves it's about right. like how do we make vigo and Mahershala shine and like that that's worth it
Thank you so much for, for all this, dude. I want to end this with some like listener questions. Yeah, sure. These are pretty specific and they're a little more technical. So feel free to kind of maybe use some set stories or something from Green Book that would maybe answer these. But the first question is from a listener named Colby Coleman. Cool name. Uh, how do you keep your frames personally interesting while still achieving the director's vision? Ooh, Colby. It's a good one. It's brutal. Um, man, get ready to get ready to uh, compromise all the time. <laughs> uh, I think I ended up writing an article about that too. So, Colby, you could always go and read uh, my filmmaker stuff. Uh, we talk. I talk a lot about compromising on set. Um, but yeah, exactly. How do you keep it interesting? Sometimes you don't. You know, sometimes you just have to know when to, when to call it and put your ego aside, put your, put whatever that burning desire is in you to find something interesting and beautiful and realize that that's not what the director wants or what they want is, is equally interesting, but just in a different direction. Um, and again, that's going back to being the chameleon, you know, if, uh, I couldn't shoot every movie like I did green room and I couldn't shoot every movie like I did, uh, 20th century women. I mean, Mike just loved his ZX pushes, man. Like put that camera on yeah. the dolly and just push in and every shot's incredible. I couldn't just lift that and apply it to green book. It just wouldn't make any sense. Like Pete doesn't right. design scenes like that. He doesn't, you know, make these tableaus everywhere. Um, so you have to find, yeah. How do you find things that are interesting? I think that every frame, every frame could be like a head against a white wall. Like you'll, you're going to be looking at their eyes and their cheeks and their hair and like, uh, this is another thing that, yeah, you, I, I suppose it's not taught. You're going to find your own sense of balance. I think taking stills, uh, I love taking pictures. A lot of my mm -hmm. pictures aren't that good, but I just take a lot. Um, some, mostly of my kids, of the black widows I find on the property, of whatever. I, I just take photos, and I'm, I think it's a way to just keep that muscle energized and yeah. exercised right. and you're finding new ways of framing you're finding new ways of balancing a frame and then when you get on set uh you know the director's like i want a medium close-up okay great everyone wants a medium close-up so how do you find and maybe it's something very slight you know maybe it's i will say harder than directors are usually pretty easy going if i'm like no i really want to pan this left a little bit most of the directors I worked with would be like, yeah, that's cool. Unless you're Mike Mills or Jeremy Saadier, who's like, I, this is the no. shot, you know, which yeah. I love that. Um, but uh, a lot of directors are like, yeah, whatever, dude. <laughs> that's why you're here. But <laughs> the harder thing has been the move to using operators, which is just, you know, totally part of the growing pains of, of, of commercial success. But um, Green Book was, was all operated. I had wonderful operators. Uh, luckily, um, but man, that is hard to give up, uh, especially in handheld. Why did y'all do that? What's that? Why did y'all do that? Well, it happened on 20th Century Women, and you know, I think I'd just been kind of getting away with it. And I was shooting these small movies and kind of flying under the union's radar. And then they heard about 20th Century Women, and they were like, dude, you are not operating the camera. Um, I really? Yeah, and traditionally, this is dealt with by bench operators so everyone else was like don't worry about it just hire a bench operator the problem is i've been a bench operator and it was the worst four weeks of my life mm -hmm. <laughs> um right. you have to show up every day 
everyone's like, oh man, you got it so easy. You get to just sit around and read or, yeah. you know, screw off. But <laughs> you know I'd what? Not. I'm a yeah. filmmaker, dude. Like yeah. I want to be engaged. <laughs> and I was like, going to the DP, I was like, I'll make you coffee. I'll do whatever. I just want to be helpful. And by the third or fourth day, like no one wants to talk to you. The ACs don't want you near the cart. The DP's too busy and you just feel like a piece of crap. Um, I wasn't, I just couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. So I was like, you know what? I got to turn this, you know, I got to make lemonade out of my lemons um, and found a great operator, Jason Oldact. And what was difficult though, is that that was a big reason I think uh, Mike hired me was for my, for my movement for the way right. I consider movement, for the way I think about the way a camera is going to move through space and time. And um, it actually took a long, many conversations with Mike to make him okay with it and why I'm doing it this way, but then also to train Jason not to shoot so well because he is a great operator and like all great operators, they're almost too good. And Mike's right. like, That's no, I want a certain amount of like, it's like we're just being, it's like when an actor moves a little breeze hits the camera and it suggests a move, but it also happens to land just at the right spot, just right. at the right time. I can kind of intuit a lot of that stuff uh, largely right. because of my documentary experience and like knowing how to anticipate body language. Um, whereas a lot of operators are just super great target, target operators. And uh, so I'm like, no, 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 you actually have to be bad, a little bit bad, but also yeah. be great at these certain specific things. And Jason, eventually he did a great job. He totally got it. And, and I learned a lot. And you know what? It allowed me to be free of the camera. And now I could be close to Mike. And we could be talking about these shots as they were happening. And that ended up being really important to my work um, that I didn't realize right away. But I will say on that specific note, I will say um, I feel like my frames are compromised more than I would like. And I, um, even, even with wonderful operators like I had on, on Green Book, there's stuff that's like, yeah, like I want to get in there right. and just move right. it because it's like, it's usually just a few degrees and it's something, right. it's an edge of a tree. It's like the way the roof line intersects with some, you know, it, you're going to find out what annoys you and what pleases you, what kind of settles your, your filmmaking chi when you're the, uh, when you see it. And I think taking a lot right. of pictures and looking at those pictures helps develop that. I hope that answers that question. No, I think that was great. Last one. Uh, a listener named Caleb Ford is wanting to know what is the one thing you think you can still improve on today? Oh man, all, all of it, all of it. Um, one thing it's, uh, it ultimately is management, but it's, um, it's getting really good at, um, continuity across your scenes, across your work, across a movie and, and scheduling. I think scheduling is the unsung hero of all great DPs work. And, uh, right in line with that is your AD, like you and your AD, you guys got to be super tight and yeah. your AD has to totally get it and get why, uh, you want things a certain way at a certain time and they will, they are the magic makers. They will make your life a living hell or they will give you your best photography day ever um, if it's scheduled correctly. Right. Um, and Green Book, I had a um, 
J.B. Rogers, just a phenomenal, phenomenal AD, and uh, and his experience, he has the experience to back that statement up. But he and I spent a lot of time, like, how do we do this? How do I? How can I achieve lighting continuity? The things I think I look at when I look at other movies that I'm so impressed by, it's like, how the how the f did yeah. they shoot this whole scene with 30 pieces of coverage <laughs> and it looks so good? from every yeah. angle. Um, and you see that it doesn't matter what movie, like what the genre, like you can see that in Harry Potter just as much as you can see it in, um, you know, some of Sean Bobbitt's work, but like the, the guys who just, and the gals who get it, that is a beautiful dance with scheduling and it's yeah. knowing, Hey, look, we're going to, sh- and it's timing because I can be, you know, any DP who's worth their salt is going to be like, well, great. We'll shoot this wide, you know, Sunset, awesome. Um, but what about everything else? What about all the coverage right. that you have to shoot at noon? Like, how yeah. are you getting that stuff so well matched? So you know, and obviously we have DI now and all these other tools. But like, that's something I'm—I uh, wouldn't say I'm obsessing about, but it's something I'm super cognizant of. And as I start considering films, even just on the script uh, level, before I even meet with directors, it's like I'm working out in my head like, how would a scene like this? ever work and you know with with constantly raising that image bar like how do i get that look i want and how could i maintain that look across how much time i know it's going to take to shoot that that scene um it's very tricky and so i think those guys and gals like that are doing that um yeah my hat's off to them that's it's just uh it's an impressive thing to do this episode was mixed by christian stropko or as i like to call him my dear friend christian you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Good the Podcast. 